Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 25th of June, 2023, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on the spirit of fellowship. Um, two weeks ago, I introduced Ruth Henson's sermon at our 11 o'clock service as the scary talk in the series, um, the spirit of witness. You know, talk to a random person at church about opportunities to witness and chances are you possibly see a tensing up of the body and a hastily invented excuse falling from their lips as they try and get away from you. And kind of like, don't ask me to go be part of a mission team, please. Uh, but I think that actually in this series, there's another scary word. It's the one we're looking at today. Fellowship. For some people, the very notion of Christian fellowship is a terrifying prospect. Uh, you know, think about it in these different social situations we find ourselves in. The nightmare of a forced social function. Awkward small talk over coffee with people you don't know and there's no way of walking away from. Dreaded icebreaker games. And especially when it comes to Christian events, quiche. Ew, gross. Joking aside, though, um, if you're not really much of a people person, someone who generally avoids social events, someone who's just quite naturally shy, then the fellowship side of church is not necessarily your type of thing. But just looking at those sort of examples there and what we think about a fellowship, you know, is that what fellowship is really all about? And why is fellowship so important to us? that we need to look at how the early church was led by the Holy Spirit in its acts of fellowship. Uh, here at Christchurch, there are many things we do that we would label as, I think, you know, coming under the fellowship description. And it's a really important part of our life here at Christchurch. We have numerous weekly and monthly events for different types of people, young, old, male, female, families. Home groups are a great provider of friendship, support, encouragement, and the opportunity to pray and study the Bible together in a small group. And on Sunday, there are so many youth groups where young people can meet with one another. Mission is also not just important to part of the ministry here at Christchurch. It also provides great opportunities for fellowship. Here's a picture of Grapevine, our monthly lunch club. And also a picture of a, a trip to one of our mission partners, the Jonas Centre, where several of us spent a week helping out at the site on a working party. So, you know, all in all, I think we actually do fellowship pretty well here at Christchurch. Um, and I have to ask, what exactly do we need to learn from the, old, from the early church about this, if we've got it all ticked? No. But also, I suppose we do need to ask, what is the spirit of fellowship and no, it's not something you can buy in the drink aisle of a supermarket to get the party going. Now, I have to say, um, that verse from Acts 2, those verses at the beginning of Acts, uh, of that passage from Acts 2, I've always loved this description of the early church. It just sounds so perfect and idyllic. Such a wonderful time in the development of the early church. Everyone filled with awe and wonder. No one going without glad and sincere hearts praising God and the number of people coming to faith growing daily. It could also, I guess, be likened to some kind of like early hippie commune uh, or fanatical cult, really, couldn't it? Except it didn't require people to completely cut themselves off from society. Instead, what the early church was about 
was about worshipping God and prioritising the needs of others. It's in these acts of worship, teaching, praying, praising God, that we see the identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like the only church, our own Christian identity can be found in the fellowship of worship. If you were to take a kind of sociological analysis of a church service, you'd most likely find that Christians were being exposed to texts and teachings and symbols and rituals that are used to develop a Christian identity. There's God's word, the Bible, illuminated and made accessible, hopefully, through the sermon. We're surrounded by images that remind us of why we're here. We share in acts of collective worship and prayer, and we partake in an act of remembrance through communion. Not yet at 9.30, but maybe that's something for the future. It's in our worship that I think we truly discover our sense of fellowship as a church. Congregations express their collective identity in worship. And through this process, its members reinforce their own sense of inclusion within a particular group. In this respect, we could say that worship reinforces community and fellowship. But what is truly different about church community is that the nature of our worship and our fellowship has at its heart the Holy Spirit. That is what keeps churches distinctly Christian rather than just secular places of fellowship and community. Now, Acts is quite an interesting book. Um, it's traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles, and yet the 12 apostles actually play relatively minor roles in the book. What perhaps be a more fitting title for Acts, uh, and one which some theologians have taken to using, is to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for it is the Spirit which plays a leading role filling and empowering the believers and guiding and directing the progress of the gospel as it spreads to more and more people. But the Holy Spirit isn't about God's presence in us, inspiring us to enthusiastic singing and praying in church. And one of the most striking ways the Holy Spirit empowered the early church was in sacrificial love. Going back to that passage from Acts chapter 2, you can't help but notice, and uh, I make no apologies if you were hoping I was going to gloss over it, the more challenging aspects of life of the early church. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The other reading that we had from Acts chapter 4 is even more detailed in this regard. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's quite an impressive thing to do. The early church was a community that displayed generosity and unity towards one another. Some members, as we can see from uh, there, even warranted a special mention, like Joseph, called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, his nickname is well-deserved, I feel. And his generosity and sacrificial offering that he made is particularly noteworthy. 
As a Levite, he would not have been permitted to inherit land in Israel. So it's quite possible that the land is something he's bought himself, perhaps as an investment, as a business deal. And yet here he is, willing to sell it and give up the proceeds to the church for the benefit of others. This is what the spirit of fellowship can really be seen to be about in the early church. It's not just about sharing fun and laughter with fellow Christians at social events. It's about sacrificial love for other Christians and others. It's not just about sharing prayer requests in our home group or fervently saying amen when we pray in church. It's about being willing to be there with a person in a time of darkness and despair and praying with them, helping sustain them, no matter what else we'd rather be doing. It's about loving others as you would love yourself. Now, nothing, I think, gets the toxic juices flowing amongst Christians on um, social media than when there's something being said or posted that makes half the people feel uncomfortable and prompts the other half to maybe question their beliefs. Um, quite recently, you may have seen in the news, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, spoke out against the illegal migration bill, and he called it morally unacceptable, and stating that the bishops in the House of Lords would not abandon their hopes and efforts for a nation and world that helps those in trouble and supports those in need. Now, on social media, there was angry disagreement between those who are supportive of Justin Welby's comments and those opposed to them. Uh, I'm not going to get into a political debate about this here and now. Uh, those who know me well enough are likely to know my own feelings on this. But some of the charges frequently levelled by those who were opposed to the Archbishop's position is to say, why don't you house some asylum seekers first before trying to tell us what to do? Why don't churches open their doors to housing those people? You should be focused on the needs of those who are native to this country, first of all. And they're not wrong. The church has to lead by example. In welcoming and caring for everyone. Fellowship can never be exclusive. Fortunately, churches do open their doors to those fleeing persecution and in need of shelter. They do feed the hungry in their immediate communities through the multitude of food banks that are run. And the Archbishop of Canterbury has opened up his residence to those seeking refuge. A church that is made up of its members, filled with the spirit of fellowship, is one that is truly authentic when it is sacrificial. That's what the early church was so focused on. And it is a church described as being filled with people of glad and sincere hearts. Now that's not to say there was always unity and agreement by any means. The chapters following the passages we've read tell of disagreements and grumbling within the early church. And even an attempt to cheat the church out of a promised offering with quite severe consequences. Uh, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, if you're interested in reading more. And it's important to remember that each member of a congregation has their own story to tell. We will all have our own thoughts and views and beliefs. 
We all will have our own experience, our own unique experience of worshipping in church and our own unique response to the praise and prayer and fellowship we experience. Some, like Barnabas, are moved to truly inspiring responses. What will ours be? What will yours be? What are you willing to give, to sacrifice for the benefit of others? Your time, energy, effort, creative input, money. When you look at a sociological approach to a church, you realize that each congregation will always be shaped by its own social demographic. And I think it's fair to say that we probably have a much greater potential to be financially generous than, say, a church in a slum in Mumbai. And yet it's often those very poor churches in deprived areas where we see the community coming together in the spirit of fellowship, of sacrificial love, so evidently, and ensuring that no one goes without. When I was a young teenager, the great American evangelist, Billy Graham, came to the UK for a final tour. Um, those of you of a certain age may well remember seeing various sort of teenagers and older people in white t-shirts with life and misspelt written across it and come and hear one man make sense of it written on the front. Um, it was very much the thing to do in church. But no, I remember going to Wembley Stadium to hear Billy Graham speak uh, with a lot of other people from this church back in, I think it was 1989 he came. And I have to confess, I don't actually remember very much of what Billy Graham said. I was much more interested in running around Wembley Stadium, having a look with some friends. Um, but I do remember that at some point, and I'm kind of relying on what my dad told me, and I'm possibly embellishing a bit here, but at some point, Billy Graham told a story about what the journey to faith is like for many people. And I'm adapting it slightly through my memory, but it went something like this. He told the story of a beautiful princess whose father, the king, had decided it was time for his daughter to marry. You can lose the slide. And instead of just inviting any old prince from elsewhere to propose and you know, bring two royal houses together, the king decided he wanted to test the bravery, commitment, and determination of the men in his land. And only one of those who could display such courage and purpose would be deemed worthy of his daughter's hand in marriage. The men all assembled together and were told that to win the king's daughter's hand in marriage, they needed to jump from a steep bank into a great river that separated the castle from the rest of the land. The river was fast flowing. And if you weren't strong enough to swim against the current, you risked being smashed on the rocks further down and then thrown over a large waterfall downstream. And if you did manage to break free of the strong current, you got to the deepest part of the river where it was impossible to stand and yet hungry alligators awaited you, ready to eat you up in an instant. And if you managed to get past them, the other side of the river was a thick, oozing mess of mud that it was easy to get trapped in and stuck and still become alligator lunch. The king then raised the drawbridge across the river to the castle and waited to see which of the men might be brave enough to try this task. A few men wandered around by the edge of the river, but they were too scared to get any closer. They knew that once they jumped in, they couldn't go back. 
They wouldn't be able to clamber back up. They would get swept down and be dashed on the rocks or eaten by alligators. A seemingly impossible task. After a while, the king was about to give up. No one was going to try and win his daughter's hand in marriage. He realized that no one was going to be worthy. When all of a sudden, there was a shout and a splash and an almighty commotion. Everyone's eyes were drawn to a man frantically swimming in the water with all his strength, swimming against a treacherous current. He was getting pushed further and further down towards the rocks, but with all his might and energy, he swam against it and broke free of the current. And then just as he started to catch his breath, he saw a whole load of alligators coming towards him, alerted by the splashing and the shouting from the riverbank as all the other men shouted words of encouragement and warning. Terrified, he swam as fast and as quickly as he could, weaving in and out of the alligators, grabbing any debris he could to poke and fend them off and beat them off. And just as he managed to, avoid their, to evade their clutches, he reached the edge of the river and started to sink into that treacherous mud. Exhausted, he started to wade through, but he was sinking further and further until he noticed some reeds and was just about able to clamber himself out, using that as leverage, until eventually, exhausted and shaking, he clambered out of the river and collapsed at the feet of the king and his daughter. The men on the other side cheered wildly, and the king helped the man to his feet and said, Congratulations, you have won my daughter's hand in marriage. What do you have to say? Just one thing, he said. Who pushed me? <laughs> Sometimes in our Christian life, we often need a push, a nudge, to move us into action. If you're feeling moved by the spirit of fellowship, to do something, but not sure what. Here's a suggestion. Uh, I mentioned the Jonah Center at the start of this talk. It's a Christian holiday retreat and conferencing center, uh, center with beautiful log cabins to stay in, set in stunning countryside in the Yorkshire Dales that also provides subsidized holidays to those in need of respite. It's something we've supported for many years and it was founded by members of this church. And acquiring the site to do run the centre, was only made possible through the generous donations of many people, including several from this church, and others being willing to provide interest-free loans. The centre now has the opportunity to acquire the rest of the estate which borders the site and contains a wonderful manor house and further conferencing facilities. And the new managers of the Jonah Centre, Seb and Rachel, have a vision to see the Jonah Centre grow as a Christian retreat and conferencing centre for the north of England, just to be the real destination place where people can go for a break, for fellowship, to grow in their faith, and also provide even more subsidised breaks for those in need of life-changing respite. But again, that's only going to be possible through unexpected generosity and sacrificial giving. There are many other ways to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I'm sure Stephen would happily talk to you about the various projects and initiatives that you could support here at Christchurch in terms of time, of energy, of money, of creativity. What we learn from the early church is that spirit-led worship and fellowship is at its most real and authentic when it's not about us and 
some warm, fuzzy feeling, but about others. Within Christian fellowship, we look not for individual happiness, but for the kingdom of God. And so there's just one question left to ask yourself. What will you do to further God's kingdom today?